No, I'm not Gilbert. Um, I'm giving my first sermon today. Um, <laughs> I'm a little, little excited, uh, a lot nervous. Um, <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the white pages. Um, so that's uh, 30 different books that are uh, in the Bible. Um, yeah, so uh, hope you guys are all excited. <laughs> all right. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you all right? Yeah. You sound a little nervous. Are you all right? A little bit. Okay. All right. Just, um, you know what you're doing? Working on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did, did, um, uh, <coughs> so, uh, where are we going to go? Um, not really sure. Kind of winging it, maybe. <laughs> kind of winging it. Okay. Did you, did you actually read the passage that we're preaching on today? No. Oh. Um, well, um, okay. That's one way to get out of preaching a sermon. Um, well, I'm sorry, folks. We, we, were, we were planning for, for Steve to be able to deliver a message today, so I guess I'm kind of on the spot now. So, uh, White Pages. Uh, when we last, last left the Bible, the hero was Solomon. We were looking at Solomon, and since the time of Solomon, lots of stuff has happened. So uh, after Solomon died, there were lots of kings that came afterwards. So we're just filling this time frame. There were lots of kings. There were, there were some good kings, and there were some bad kings. And some of the kings were very good kings, and some of the kings were very bad kings, and the, and the kingdom uh, was, was up and the kingdom was down. Every good king, the kingdom was up. Every bad king, the kingdom was down. And it was up and down and up and down and upy down and downy up and up and up and down and down and down. Anyways, uh, lost my thought there. Um, so it, the things got so bad within Israel with all these kings that were obedient and disobedient and everything else that was going on that, that, that like, the kingdom was up and down and it was shaken left and it was shaken right. And it finally, it finally was shaken so hard that it had a great fall. And, and once it fell, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put the kingdom together again. So, I mean, it was... Hi, Gilbert. Did you actually read what... Well, hey, welcome today to our series called The White Pages, the part of the Bible that nobody ever, ever reads. Now, this is actually a, this is a, a joke uh, that I've come up with uh, many years ago. But basically, if you, if you look at it, the, the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament, people love to read the stories about Noah and Adam and Eve and Joshua and Moses and David and Solomon and all these guys. And, and those pages are so worn because, you know, you're just reading those stories over and over again. You know, the sort of the, the grease and the grime from your fingers sort of tethers and, and, and uh, it, it darkens the pages there. Same thing with the, the Psalms and the Proverbs. You know, you read it so much that it just sort of gets worn. Then you, you switch over to the New Testament. The exact same thing happens there. The stories of Jesus, the story of Paul and Peter and the founding of the church, all those pages get worn. But as you can see in our graphic, there's sort of this, this section in the middle of the Bible that nobody ever tends to read. That's what we're calling the white pages. These are the stories of the prophets. And nobody wants to read the prophets, and there's two reasons nobody wants to read the prophets. Number one is 
many times you read it and you're going, didn't I already read this before? This sounds very, very familiar. I think I've read this before and so sort of skip over it. The other reason that people don't read the prophets is because these dudes were weird. I mean, the, the language and the imagery that they use, you're like, you know what, it's hard enough to read the Bible as it is, much less with this. I'm just going to skip right on over it. But see, we can't do that here at Exponential. And the reason that we can't do that is we've been actually, since the summer, just going straight through the Bible chronologically. We started in Genesis back in, I think it was June or July, and we're just going straight through, and we'll wrap up next May with the book of Revelation. And so it'll be about a whole year that we've just gone straight through the Bible. So we can't skip these prophets and the, the stories of what they're all about. And so that, that's what we're going to talk about here this morning is, what are these prophets? And, and we're starting this series, it's going to be four weeks, and talking about this, this time period that really is going to lead us up then to next month, which is we'll turn the page, and it'll be the story of Jesus, and we'll start going through there. But we really need to know, where was Israel at when these prophets were prophesying and speaking about what was going on there in the nation? Now, before we actually jump into that, I want to give you something that's helpful, because again, I said what a lot of times people do is they're like, I'm reading these prophets, and it seems like I already read that before. Let me explain what that's all about. If you got your outline there, go ahead and uh, pull that out. A couple of notes for you. The first thing is this. Realize that the Bible in the Old Testament is made up of 39 different books. So the Bible, 66 books altogether, 39 in the Old Testament. 27 in the New Testament, and we'll be talking in the coming months about what is the difference between the Old and the, the New. But even in the Old Testament, realize this, that the first 17 books are historical books, just chronologically going straight through. Next, you have five books of poetry, and then you have these 17 prophetical books, these 17 books that we're calling the white pages of the Bible, the part that nobody ever wants to read. Now, here's something that I found very, very helpful when I first became a follower of Jesus is when I realized this. And here's how I put it there on your outline. That it's helpful to know that the poetical and prophetical books fall on top of the historical timeline. Again, it's helpful to know that the poetical and prophetical books fall on top of the historical timeline. You're going, what in the world do you mean by that, Gilbert? Well, take a look at this chart here on the screen. And it may be a little hard to read, but it, it doesn't really matter if you can see it. I just need you to, to really be able to see the colors. Notice that we have three different colors there, red, and we have the yellow, and we have the orange. The red are the historical books. This is Genesis, uh, all the way up through then Nehemiah, which we'll be covering him at the end of this series, just straight through. Now, the first five actually are missing in the historical section, those first five uh, books uh, of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those were the books written by Moses, but we already covered all that story, right, of, of him and, and what he had done. So you got those red books there along the bottom. Notice then that the five books of poetry that are in yellow, they fall somewhere on the timeline of those red books. And then the same thing with the orange books there. Those are the books of prophecy. Notice that they fall on the timeline. So that's why oftentimes when you're reading the Bible, you're going, wait, I've already read this before. And it's because you have. It's now, this time, you're seeing it from somebody else's perspective. In this case, the prophets. And so let's just throw out, uh, um, you know, in, let's go to 2 Kings there. So as you're reading in 2 Kings, which you're going to read in those first 17 books of the Bible, 
Later on, you're going to come in those the, the 17 uh, prophetical books, and you're going to read stories from Jeremiah and Micah and Jonah and Hosea and Amos and Joel. It all falls on that timeline. So again, they're prophesying about what is happening during the time of the second kings. Does that make sense? And so just keep, keep in mind that it, it's a timeline sort of like that. Now, where did we leave off at? Well, Nate actually did say the right thing, that we left off with Solomon. Now, let, let's, let's uh, sort of catch you up here. Again, first five books of the Bible, that gets us all the way up through Moses. Then we get to Joshua. We talked about him a couple months ago in the period of the judges. And then you get into uh, First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. That is the stories of Saul and David when he was young. And then as you keep on going into uh, First Kings and then the Second Chronicles, that's David when he's older, and now the story of Solomon. And that's where we left off last week. In fact, we took a whole month where we looked at the story of Solomon. And you remember with Solomon, he was very, very wise, intellectually. But how did he live? He lived foolishly. He lived like a fool. And God had said, look, if you persist in this, bad news is coming. Bad news for you, bad news for your family, bad news for the whole nation of Israel. Now, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became the new king. And sure enough, he was another evil and, and wicked king. And what ends up happening is now the kingdom got divided. Israel went through a civil war. Ten tribes to the north, they retained the name of Israel. There was two tribes then to the south that split off, and they became Judah. And what happens is over the period of the next couple hundred years, 38, and this is between the two, 38 different kings ruled during that time and one queen. And it was just really, really bad for everybody. And they continued to rebel. And God had said, look, if you keep on doing this, I'm going to allow somebody else to come in and conquer you. And sure enough, that's what happened. In 772 B.C., the Assyrians conquered those ten northern tribes of Israel. Now, about 100 years after that, a new prophet in the south, in, in Judah, rose up. His name was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah started just prophesying. And prophets were basically this. They were like the, the early warning systems that, hey, something isn't right here. And he was warning, look, if we keep going the way that we're going, we're going to end up like our brothers up to the north. And God's going to allow somebody to come in and conquer us and take us off. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Jeremiah, he keeps talking to him, and he's very disturbed with, with what's happening there in, in Judah. The people are worshiping rocks. They're, they're worshiping uh, images made out of wood. And these false gods that they were worshiping, they were doing children's sacrifice, child sacrifices. And Jeremiah keeps saying, we, we've got to turn, we've got to repent, we've got to get back to God. But they didn't do it. And so finally we read this then in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 to 7. And if you have a Bible, you may want to turn along and, and follow along in 2 Kings here. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. All the scriptures are provided there on the outline that we gave you when you came in. Or if you have a smartphone, you want to pull that out, download the Version app, and you can follow the scriptures there as well. And then something we're still in beta testing with right now is if you go to exponential.nucleus.church, the outline that you were handed uh, as you came in, you can actually fill in all the blanks right there online as well. So if you want to do that. So in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 to 7, Jeremiah uh, 
Uh, actually, we, we read this. We're not through Jeremiah. Yet. It says, On January the 15th, during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon led his entire army against Jerusalem, and they surrounded the city and built siege ramps against its wall. And Jerusalem was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah's reign. By July 18th in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, the famine in the city had become so severe and the last of the food was entirely gone. Then a section of the city wall was broken down. Since the city was surrounded by the Babylonians, the soldiers waited for nightfall and escaped through the gate between the two walls between the king's garden. And then they headed towards the Jordan Valley. But the Babylonian troops chased the king and overtook him on the plains of Jericho. For his men had all deserted him and they scattered. And they captured the king and they took him to the king of uh, of Babylon at Ribola, where they pronounced judgment upon Zedekiah. And they made Zedekiah watch as they slaughtered his sons. And then they gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. They bound him in bronze chains and they led him away to Babylon. Now, down in those southern tribes of Judah lie Jerusalem, the capital city. And if you remember, this was the, the city of David. This was the city that Solomon then built the, the temple. We, we talked about the, the temple being built. This is where God resided, God's glory. This was God's house was there in Jerusalem, in the temple. For the Jews, this was a very, very holy place. But yet what we just read here was now King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. He comes in and he starts to conquer them. Again, what Jeremiah had prophesied was going to happen is beginning to happen. Now, what happened next was completely demoralizing. Look at verses 8 to 12. On August the 14th of that year, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard and an official of the Babylonian king, arrived in Jerusalem. And he did what? He, what's it say? He burned down the, the temple. He burned down the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and what? all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city, and then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took his exiles, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the population. But the captain of the guard allowed some of the poorest people to stay behind to care for the vineyards, and for the fields. Now, I don't want you to miss the significance of this. Again, we've been covering the entire Old Testament and going all the way back to Abraham. God had promised Abraham that, Abraham, out of you and your descendants, one day I'm going to create a nation, a nation so vast and so great that you can't even look up to the stars of the sky and, and be able to count how many people are going to be in your descendants. Sure enough, eventually that happens. The, the nation of Israel was formed. We look at that story. And they went in through, through Joshua and they conquered. They go into this promised land. And they're living there. They are, they are God's people and he is their God. And they're doing good for a while. Then we talked about they went through the judges and they were up and they were down. They were up and they were down. And eventually they cry out, we, we want a king. Now God didn't want them to have the king because he was to be their king. But they get a king anyway. Ultimately, David says, I'm going to make Jerusalem the capital city. 
And I'm going to build a temple where God can reside. I don't want him to live in, in a tent made of hands anymore. I want him to have a permanent location. If you remember, God had told David, look, there's too much blood on your hands. It's going to happen through your son Solomon. Solomon builds this glorious temple. And remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at this, that the, the glory of the Lord fell in that place so much that the priests weren't even able to stay in there. This was the house of God. This is the city of David. And now the walls have been torn down. The city has been burnt down. The temple is no more. That's what Jeremiah is, experience, is he's experiencing as he's writing his book. In fact, he writes a, a couple different books in the Old Testament. I mean, is it any wonder that his nickname is the Weeping Prophet? Could you imagine if our, our whole city of Harrisburg, if it just got burnt to the ground and, and outside invaders, they, they came in and just overtook us? How much would you weep for our city? Because that's what Jeremiah is experiencing. And so he, he writes this book, it's called Lamentations, where he's lamenting all of these things that are going on. And in Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Jeremiah says this, Jerusalem, once so crowded, lies deserted and lonely. This city that was known all over the world is now like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. Each night, bitter tears flood her cheeks. None of her former lovers are there to offer comfort. Her friends have betrayed her and are now her enemies. The people of Judah are slaves, suffering in a foreign land with no rest for so from sorrow. Her enemies have chased her down, and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Enemies now rule the city and live as they please. The Lord has punished Jerusalem because of her awful sin. He has let her people be dragged away. Now, not only does he weep for the city, not only does he weep for his nation, but Jeremiah, he's like, I'm the prophet. I, I should have done more. I should have preached longer. I should have preached stronger. I should have let them know that this was what's going to happen. Now, he had been warning them this what's going to happen, but he's still sort of beating himself up, and he goes into a, a state of depression. And in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, he writes this, I have suffered much because God was angry. He chased me into a dark place where no light could enter. I am the only one that he punishes over and over again without ever stopping. Now, of course, that wasn't true. But I want you to see the, the place that he had gotten himself into, this very, very dark place of depression. But even despite all that, even in the midst of, God's holy city and God's temple being destroyed. Even in the midst of all this depression, Jeremiah still has hope. Look at Lamentations 3, 19 to 24. He says, just thinking of my troubles and my lonely wandering makes me miserable. That's all I ever think about and I'm depressed. But, he says, but then I remember something that fills me with hope 
The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Deep in my heart, I say the Lord is all I need. I can depend on him. What he is saying is, look, even in the midst of destruction, even in the midst of all this punishment, God has not left us. God's love remains. And I want you to hear that for your life today. That no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going through, God's love, God's faithfulness remains in your life. His mercies are new every morning. Why? Because great is his faithfulness. Jeremiah then, speaking on behalf of God, prophesies this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. He says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. He's prophesying that 70 years you're going to be in exile, but God is going to bring you home again. And here's the lesson for all of us. I put it on your outline this way. God didn't do all this to pay them back. He did it to bring them back. And the same thing is true for you. All of us at some point have done something in our lives that we've hurt God. We've sinned against him. We have all done things where we've rejected him. We've all had those times where we're like, God, I'm going out. You stay home tonight. I'm going out. And don't wait up late. Because I plan on being a while. In other words, there's, for all of us, been those times that we have knowingly and willfully done things that we know breaks the heart of God, that it's a sin against God. And many of us think that God is just waiting for the very perfect time to pay me back. And I don't know what you did, it may have been just a one-time thing, you know, one night that you regret now to this day. Maybe you sinned against God in a, a continual pattern for days or weeks or months, maybe even decades. And you're living in this, this fear that, that God is just waiting to pounce on me. God is just waiting to pay me back. But again, I want to say to you, God isn't looking to pay you back. He is looking to bring you back to him. Why? Because great is his faithfulness, his mercies are new every morning. Amazing is his grace. God isn't looking to pay you back. God's looking to bring you back. He still has a wonderful, wonderful plan for your life, no matter what you've done in the past. And he wants you to live it out. In fact, that's what Jeremiah talks about next. Jeremiah Chapter 29, verse 11, very, very famous verse. Some of you know this one. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, we're going to talk in the coming months about how oftentimes we misapply this verse because we think it's meant for us, and it's not. Again, this was very specific to the context of the day. This was meant for the nation of Israel. That look, 70 years, you're going to go into exile, but I'm going to bring you back because I know all the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
But even if we misapply this verse most of the time and we buy little plaques for our walls and stuff that has this on it, some of you are laughing because you have it. (laughs) (laughs) There's still something out of this verse that we can take for ourselves today. God says, for I know the plans I have for you. And I don't care whether it was meant for the nation of Israel or for you or 100 years ago or 100 years from now. God always knows the plans that he has for you. Now, some of you are going, God, that's great that you know the plans that you have for me, but would you mind filling me in? I would like to know the the plans that you have for me. What is your will for my life? Oftentimes, we're going, I just don't know. Am I supposed to take this job or not? Am I supposed to marry that, that person or not? Which college am I supposed to go to? Are we supposed to, to move or are we not supposed to, to move? How, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You've had those questions before? How many of you say that, you know what, sometimes trying to discover God's will for my life seems like I'm searching for a needle in a haystack? That, man, I am searching and searching and searching. I just can't figure out what is God's will. Well, guess what? Good news for you today. You're making it way harder than what it really needs to be. You're going, Gilbert, I'm all yours. Please share with us. All right, Steve's going to come back forward and finish. No. (laughs) No, it's actually pretty simple. Get your notes out there. There's three things you need to understand about God's will. The first thing is this that you need to understand God's providential plan. God's providential plan. We're going to call this the the mind of God. And what you need to realize about this is God's providential plan is the things that God has decided to do regardless. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. It doesn't matter how obedient you are or that you're not. It doesn't matter how much you pray. There are just some things that God has decided I'm going to do. For example, Jesus coming to the earth. God was going to do that regardless. Jesus dying on the cross, he was going to do that regardless of what humans were doing. Jesus coming again in the future, that's happening whether we like it or not. That we're all going to stand before God in judgment. Again, you don't get the vote on that. You get the vote this Tuesday, but you don't get the vote on God's providential plan. There are just some things that God says, I'm just going to do it. This is the the mind of God. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my chair here to represent God's providential plan. So we're going to put that right there. What's this? God's providential plan, which is the? The mind of God, right. All right, number two then on your outline is God's moral plan. God's moral plan then is the heart of God. This is the things that God says, look, I have a better plan for your life than you have for your life. And so I'm going to give you some some commands, some instructions of how to do life best. Where do we find those things? Right here in the good old B-I-B-L-E. And so as you read through, isn't it true that God gives us some instruction like don't steal? Don't get angry. Be humble, as we talked about last week. And and so he just keeps giving all these different things. Do this or or don't do that. 
This is the, the heart of God. And so my table today, it's going to represent the heart of God. All right, so what do we got here? We've got the God's providential plan. We'll just call it the what? The, the mind of God. And we, over here we have the, the moral plan, which is heart of God, right? If you want to know, do I take that job? Do I make that move? Do I date that person? Do I marry that person? Is it time to start a family? Any of those things. Let me say this. That is the third thing then, which is God's personal plan for your life. And God's personal plan for your life always, always, always falls in between God's providential plan and God's moral plan. It's always going to be in here. These two things act as guardrails, basically, as bumpers, that, that you're to stay within these two things. What is it that God's already going to do, and what is it that God desires for me to do? Does this make sense? His will for you is always in here. And what's so cool is when you live in here, a lot of times if you're doing things according to God's providential plan and God's moral plan, you're living according to the word. A lot of times he says, look, I gave you a brain. Make a decision. See, a lot of times we think that God's will is just A or B, black or white. And sometimes it is. But a lot of times he says, it's A through Z. Just use your brain. Choose something. Because it's within my providential plan. It's within my moral plan. Just do it. Just do it. Here's how I put it on your outline. It's living in obedience to the providential and moral plans of God that leads to insight into the personal plans of God for my life. Here's the problem. Every single one of you said, I want to know what's in here. And so you say, God, tell me what your plan is for my life so that I can consider it. We want to know God's plan, but we're like, only if it's in alignment with what I really, I really want. And so here's what I put on your outline. God doesn't give us direction for consideration, but rather for participation. That may be one we have to all say out loud together, just so it really sinks in. All right, so let's say this together. God doesn't give us direction for consideration, but rather participation. Where we get in trouble so often is we're like, I don't really know if I like that or not. You know, every time we say that, where we're actually at. Where am I at? Outside of his will. God, I, I know your word says that we're not to have sex outside of marriage, but God, I, I know that, that your word says that 10% of all my income is supposed to be returned back to you through a tithe, but 
God, I, I know that your word says that we're to, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves, that we're to gather together as a church on Sundays, but I've got to work, or my kid's got a soccer game. So often we consider God's, especially his, his moral plan, that, oh, that's something I can consider. It's just a good suggestion. But as someone once said, it's not the ten suggestions, it was the ten commandments. And when we get to the, the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul and Peter and the others, they weren't just writing this because that's what they felt. They are being inspired by the Holy Spirit in what God wants for us. God says, look, if you want to have a good life, if you want to know my plan for your life, because my plan is better than your plan, then you can't have the, well, God, I know, but. God, I know that your word says I'm not supposed to get drunk, but I'm going to go out and party anyway. God, I know that your word says that I'm supposed to to, to not steal, but I'm just going to fudge the numbers at work just a little bit. God, I, I know your word says that I need to, to love my enemies and pray for those that persecute me and, and forgive them. But God, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they hurt me. God's going, you really think I don't know what's going on? I'm God. But we live out here. This is a dangerous place to be on this side or over on this side because anytime you're outside of those guardrails, you are out of the will of God. And so we have got to learn to, to live within the, the mind of God and live within the, the heart of God. And again, it makes it easy because God says as long as you're in here, you're safe. You can make a lot of choices on your own. Now, I know some of you are going, okay, Gilbert, uh, how do I know if, if, like, I'm willfully living outside? Because here, let, let me make it clear. All of us are going to mess up still. None of us are going to be perfect. There's going to there's be those times that, that you mess up, right? But what is the difference between that, that occasional mess up and that, you know, I, I'm truly living in here? And I'll say, here's the simple test for you. Get out your calendar. Get out your phone. Look at your, look at your schedule. Because some of you actually have sin written on your calendar. Now, you don't write the word sin, but there are certain things that you have on your calendar that you know is going to cause you to sin. You know that that date that you're going to go on this weekend, that you're going to get into sin in some way, that you're going to do things that you know are outside of the, the moral and, 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 the, and the, 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 the mind and the heart of God. You know it, but yet there it is on your calendar. Friday night, I'm going out with him. Friday night, I'm going out with her. Some of you have a trip on your calendar that you know that nothing bad is going to, or uh, uh, only bad is going to come from this trip. But yet, there it is on your calendar, going away for a week to do this. Again, for, for some of you, Sunday morning, kids' soccer game. Sunday morning, work. Sunday morning, oh, it's supposed to be a good weekend, so we're going to go camping. It's written right on your calendar. Just pull your calendar out, and you'll see that oftentimes we have sin written right there. 
we have s sin that says, you know what, I'm living over in this area instead of in here. Again, finding and discovering God's will is actually pretty easy. I mean, 99% of it, he said, here's my providential plan, here's my moral plan, just stay within there. It's not rocket science. Now, the thing that you guys still have, though, is you're going, yeah, but what about that other 1%? How, how do I know which, which job, or do I buy the car or not? You know, how, how do I know those types of things? Well, let me give you three questions today as we wrap up that may help you with this. Because e even if you discover, okay, I am living within here, you, you still want to know, okay, is there even a, a more preferred plan that God may have? So three questions that you can ask. First one is this. Have I taken the time to pray, or am I rushing into things? Have I taken time to pray, or am I rushing into things? Somebody once said it this way. If God is in it, then it can wait a minute. If God is in it, it can wait a minute. Listen, the bigger the decision is, the longer you should wait, the, the more time you should seek after God in, in prayer. God, is there uh, your perfect will for me in this, or, or are you giving me like a lot of choices? But a lot of times we're like, if I don't hurry up and marry this one, if I don't hurry up and make this purchase, then I'm going to lose the opportunity. But again, the bigger the decision is, the longer you should wait, the more time you should be praying about it. So like for Lisa and I, if it's something like buying a new car, it'll be like a week or two decision. You know, when we made a, a move, you know, a house move here recently, that was a, a you know, probably about a month, six week uh, decision. And actually, that had been a conversation in, in prayer over a couple year period, but more intensely about, you know, as we started to narrow it down, okay, is this what God wants for us to do at this time in our lives? And then when it came time like eight years ago to move here to start Exponential, that wasn't just a, oh, I woke up one day and decided, hey, we're moving. That was a, a couple-month process. Now, the initial spark of that that God gave me, that did happen in a moment. The, the vision that he had given me for Exponential came in an email, and, and the words just leapt right off the screen, and it would literally take me a half hour just to describe everything that happened like in 10 seconds. But then it was a couple-month process of, of praying about Okay, was that really God speaking to Gilbert that morning, or was that just bad pepperoni pizza from the night before? So again, the, the bigger the decision, the bigger the decision, the more time you should take. Number two, do other followers of Jesus, whom I'm close with, agree, or do they think that I'm being foolish? Now let me break that down for you. First of all, notice that I said other followers. If you're trying to discover what is God's will for you, what is God's plan for you within these guardrails, why would you seek after advice from somebody that's living out here? Because where are they going to or where are they going to recommend that you go? Out here where they're at. And see, this is why it's it's so crazy that, you know, the the Bible gives a couple reasons that divorce is okay, but I see this one all the time that you know, two Christian people, they're, they're living, you know, in here and stuff, but their marriage is struggling a little bit. And so, you know, she'll go to work or he'll go to his buddies and say, hey, what do you think that I should do about this? But the people that they're asking, they're living out here. 
And so instead of saying the, 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 the godly principles that would be found within God's uh, providential plan and God's moral plan, they start giving Oprah advice, Dr. Phil advice, things from over here. And eventually they say, you know what I did? I just got rid of them. I just got a divorce. Go on, find somebody else. You deserve to be happy. So again, why would you ask advice about God's plan from somebody that's not in God's plan themselves? Well, thank you, sir. You need to show up. You need to show up every week. <laughs> and I need to re-listen to my message last week about not being proud. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Second, then, I said this, people whom you're close to, people that you're close to. Now, this doesn't mean that God can't speak through a stranger or through an acquaintance, but the people that you're close with, they know you. They know your strengths and your personality. They, they know your, your weaknesses. They know the situation that you're in better than just a, a stranger would. And so they're going to be able to speak better advice to you. So again, they're a follower of Jesus, they're close to you, and you see what they're going to say. Look at uh, Proverbs 12, 15, because just because people are speaking to us doesn't mean we're necessarily listening, right? And so here's what it says, Proverbs 12, 15. Fools think their own way is right, but the wise do what? The wise listen to others. Fool does what's right in his own mind or her own mind. Wise listen to others. Wise people seek advice and then they listen to it. The mistake is, so often, we seek advice from people that we know are going to give us the advice that we already want to hear. Now, I know none of you are dumb enough to do that. But we've all had somebody that came to us for advice, right? And they're sharing their plan and you're in your mind going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This is not... This is not going to work. This is, this is bad news. And eventually you muster up the courage to say, you know what, I don't think that's really what God would have for you to do. And they thank you for your time. They get in their car and they drive off to somebody else's house to share the same ridiculous story again with the hope that they're going to get a different answer. And what a lot of people do is they just keep going one person to the next person to the next person to the next person until finally somebody agrees with them and they go, see, I knew it. This is God's plan for me. fool doesn't listen to the advice of others. Number three. Does this plan agree with scripture or contradict it? Does this plan agree with scripture or contradict it? I, I recently had uh, somebody that they approached me about a, a pretty major decision that they needed to make for their lives. And right away I said, well, you know, does God's word have anything to say about this? I already knew that it did, but I wanted this person to, to think about it, right? And in this particular case, I mean, a lot of times when you're like, does God's word say anything about it? There may be like one or two passages. This particular instance, the Bible actually speaks to it in black and white over 100 times, <laughs> both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Moses talked about it. Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it. I mean, it, it's just there, right? And so I'm, I'm sharing some of this with them. At the end, they said to me, I think I'm going to have to pray about this. And I said, there's absolutely nothing to pray about. Because God's word and God's will never contradict one another. If God has already spoken it very clearly in black and white, he is never, ever, ever going to tell you to do something, to go somewhere, to, to be something, to say something that's in contradiction to his word. So again, we, we need to realize that for our lives, that his plan is always going to agree with this book, which is why we need to saturate ourselves with this book, especially the, the New Testament. Because how do you learn God's providential plan? What, what is it, the things that God has decided he was already going to do anyway? Well, it's all in here. How do I know God's moral plan of what God wants for me to do and, and how to best do that? Well, it's all found in here. That's why every single day we need to be reading it. Because the more you know this, the more you're going to know his will for your lives. You're going to know his heart. You're going to know his mind. And then you're going to know his plan. Now, I'd be remiss today if I didn't remind you of the greatest plan that God has for you. And that is Jesus. That Jesus, God in the flesh, came and lived a perfect and sinless life and he died on the cross so that your sins might be forgiven. And he wants a relationship with you. Why? Because of what I said earlier, our big point for the day. God's plan isn't to pay you back. God's plan is to bring you back to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to gather together to worship you in, in song and, and to just sing your praises of, of how your, your, your mercies are new every morning and that great is your faithfulness and that your grace is so, so amazing. Lord, help that to be a, a reminder to us as we've looked at this message that uh, the nation of Israel, they, they did sin and, and they were sin in exile. There was a punishment for their sin. But God, you weren't looking to pay them back. You wanted to, to bring them back. And it's the exact same thing with us. That you want to forgive us of our sin. You want to give us a fresh start and a brand new life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would each accept that just in, 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 in faith. That that's what you want for us. And that, Lord, we would then start to say, okay, God, it's not about my plans. It's not about me and my will. It's all about your kingdom come and your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And that, Lord, as we seek to, to walk in your plan and live within your will, that we would get into your word and, and say, okay, what is God's providential plan, the, the mind of God? What is God's moral plan, that the heart of God? What, what is those things? Because I'm just going to then stay safely in between those things and know that as long as I am in there that, Yes, God, you are going to protect me and you're going to bless me and you're going to be there for me in, in, in many, many great ways. And that even in the times that, that, that pain and trial and suffering come, and they will come, Jesus said that in this world you will face tribulation and hardships. That even in the midst of that, that I'll still be able to say I'm right where God wants me to be. 
because he's helping me to grow and learn from this. So Lord, if there's any, any way that you've revealed to us today that we're outside of these guardrails, I pray that we would just repent of those sins, confess them to you. And we know that your word says that when we do that, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to give us that fresh start and bring us back to you. Thank you that you've done that for me in so many ways, that you're doing that for others. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.